The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Do you remember the phrase, it can always be worse? Well, imagine that everything you've worked so hard for is suddenly taken away from you. And not just that, you're also incarcerated. How would you feel? It's easy to judge and look down on someone when they're down, but it's difficult to put yourself in their shoes. Today, we're joined by a man whose journey has forever changed him. He was once a multimillionaire banker, a successful entrepreneur who started his first business at the age of 16 and went on to own and sell hundreds of residential and commercial properties. He was the CEO of a public bank holding company at the age of 35. And at the age of 44, he sold his company for half a billion dollars. But as we all know, success can be a double-edged sword. And sometimes the price paid for success is too high. Tonight's special guest is Sean Hayes, former CEO and co-founder of Allegiant Bank Corp, a public bank holding company in St. Louis, Missouri. Sean's success story took an unexpected turn when he was convicted of a felony and was incarcerated eight years later. But he has since shared the hard-earned lessons he learned from his rise and fall in the business world. Despite his past mistakes, Sean remains a prominent figure in the business world. What's interesting about Sean's story is that it highlights the importance of learning from one's mistakes. As he once said, anybody who thinks they're somehow better, more principled, or more virtuous is lying to themselves. His journey reminds us that success can be attained through hard work and innovative thinking, but also shows us that the gray areas can be treacherous. Stay tuned to hear more about Sean's story and the valuable lessons he learned from his experiences. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hasselrich. And directly from St. Louis, Missouri, his new book, by the way, is titled The Great Choice, Lessons of My Journey from Big Time Banking to the Big House and Back. And his website is seanhayes.com. Sean with a U. Sean Hayes, welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm wonderful, Mel. Thank you for having me. It's a beautiful day here in St. Louis. My pleasure. Well, Sean, your journey from a successful entrepreneur to convicted felon is certainly a unique one, and I always love these stories. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened and what you learned from that experience? Well, in, in, in your introduction, you, you you summed it up so well that we go through life and we we take risks, we make decisions, we work hard. but Sometimes we think we're above things, and that that's really what happened to me is I say three things happened to me along the way, and there's a story about a pilot who got in a plane in, in Los Angeles heading from Washington, D.C., and he was off one degree, and given the time and the distance and the speed, he ended up in New York, and that's exactly what I did. I spent a lifetime 
slowly migrating from, you know, the black and white to the light gray to the medium gray to the dark gray. And then I crossed the line. And because of my past success, I thought I could justify it because I wasn't stealing money, Mel. I thought I could justify it. And all of a sudden I woke up and I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew I was committing a felony and uh, I did not know the consequences. And that's that's one of those things. Had I known the consequences, and I'm not really talking about the consequences so much for myself, but for my family and for victims and for people that I hurt, I certainly wouldn't have crossed that line. And, and what I hope that uh, your listeners get from this, if nothing else is, it can happen to anyone. It's like I was uh, uh, talking to someone a few weeks ago in the media and they said, you know, they were delineating levels of wrong. And I said, well, yeah, I obviously in my mind, I wasn't doing as bad as stealing money, but I was still committing a felony. It's once you cross that line, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And that's exactly what I did. What were the gray areas that you operated in during those years in banking? And what, what led you to make the decisions you did? Well, and I would I go back to the very beginning, and I think a lot of a lot of business people and certainly a whole lot of entrepreneurs, I would go to my lawyers and say, and doing legal or illegal wasn't a question, but this is how you get into the gray. I would say, don't tell me I can't do something. Tell me how I can legally do what I want to do. And then I will decide if it's worth the effort and the cost. And we made many business decisions. The analogy I would draw since I was in St. Louis is it, my office is easy. You get you get on the first exit and you take I-64 to I-55 and you're in Chicago. And my lawyers would say, well, what you want to do this time, you're going to have to go to Kansas City in a car, take a bus to Des Moines, hitchhike to Minneapolis and fly to Chicago. And I would say, boy, it takes a lot of time. It takes money. I would or wouldn't do it. So as you start making decisions in that kind of vacuum where it's how can I push up against that line? So you're, you're leaving one side. You're not, you know, you're not across the line, but you're moving into the gray. And then the longer and longer you do that, like I was using the analogy of a um, of a plane, it gets easier and easier to do. And then what happened to me, Mel, when I when I sold out, I lost and it was time to sell. And, and, and I say that in the book and, and I meant it. But I lost in particular about five people who I shared everything with for 15 years. And for 15 years, it was a lot like a marriage. It was a marriage, only a business marriage. And we ended up tired. And so I went to work for a large company. We sold out to a Fortune 200, and uh, I lost all that. I lost my ground, as I said, my ground intelligence. And then at the worst economic times in the history since the Great Depression of this country, I went back into the banking business, and I didn't have those people around me. And because times were hard, I didn't hire the best professionals around me. In fact, as often as not, I didn't hire them at all. And so all of a sudden, I don't have those checks and balances. I don't have professionals. And I'm so confident in what I can do that I start making poor decisions. And then eventually I make an illegal one. So I'm trying to to ask you some questions to set the foundations, but I really want to dissect every part of your story. This is how I like to do my interviews. But it will be interesting to, to hear more about your experience, basically how your moral compass shift over time? And, and what were the warning signs that you were straying from your ethical principles? Well, I, I think the, the the first thing was I, I didn't just wake up one day, and you asked the question perfectly. It is strain. It's a slow process. Now, I'm sure for a very small percentage of the 
population, you know, they're, they either don't have a moral compass or it's one that's not easy. But I had that moral compass that literally when I was a management trainee, they gave us a test. And this goes back now 40 years ago. And I argued with the instructor over the fact that I've only been there a few weeks. He said, you have to answer yes, that you stole something. And I hadn't. And I knew right and wrong so basically for so long that it wasn't just a, a slow journey. Literally, it was 27 years from the time I took that test till I crossed the line. But along that line, as I said earlier, I pushed because in most businesses, there's a lot of gray. And, and that's where there's higher margins, more money. And as you slowly try to seize those opportunities and greed kicks in, and that was the first moral compass. You know, as you look at the things in your moral compass, it starts to skew it, greed. And in particular, at the time, leading up to the crime with the crash of the stock market, the real estate market, and the collapse of the banking system, I lost tens of millions of dollars a month for months on end. So now I'm in, I'm panicked. And that greed and then fear, you know, most things are, are driven by greed and, greed and fear in life and in business, in your personal life and your business life. So I've got the greed thing going against me and now I'm fear. So my moral compass all of a sudden starts to be less and less. And in fact, as I was reading um, the interviews of hundreds of people that the FBI had interviewed, a man that um, I respected, an attorney, uh, we never really got along, but uh, we had a contentious relationship. But when they talked to him about an incident, he said, Sean lost his moral compass. That was not the Sean that I'd known for 25 years. And, and that's what happened. It was that slow deterioration. And then when those big things went wrong, and the greed and the fear kicked in, it got a little easier. The other thing is pride. You know, I didn't want to, and this is one thing that I accept so much better after this experience, because in my mind, I I did this. And this is a saying that many of your listeners I know have heard, seldom in life do you realize your greatest dreams are your worst fears. Mel, I've realized my greatest dreams, and yes, I've realized my worst fears. But when I was going through this, I couldn't accept failure. And that fear of failure was one more nail in that coffin of the moral compass of, well, if I do this and I manipulate this this way, I'll buy myself time. And that's what it was about. Not money, it was time. And then it allowed me to make the money to fix my problems. And in reality, not only did I commit a crime, I bought myself 11 months and it certainly didn't allow me to fix my problems. So it's a long process, but I would say it's driven primarily by fear, greed, and pride is, is what caused me to uh, skew my moral compass in the wrong way. Well, the book is all about the gray areas. What were the gray areas that you operated in during your years in banking and what led you to make the decisions that you did? I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of this had to be with the recipe for disaster that 2007, 2008 brought to all of us. I mean, I suffered the consequences myself. Yeah, well, in my case, um, it started with when I first was getting ready to graduate from college, I had a professor say, Sean, you should go into banking. And I told him, I said, Dr. Johnson, of all the things my parents thought I would be, a banker isn't on their list because they were small business people and very distrustful of banks. And they'd grown up in the Depression and even more distrustful of banks. We had three safes in 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 our place because they didn't even like to put money in the bank unless they had to. But what his, his argument was, it's changing. And this was in 1982, but there was really a, a 
seismic shift in banking in the late 70s towards sales in a culture. And, and you can look at so many, Wells Fargo had so many cases of violating laws and of, of paying fines and, and people going to prison around, around sales saying. So sales culture came into a culture that was really a culture for the hundred and some years before, several hundred years before, of order taking. So I get into a business that is pretty staid and is not aggressive. And I'm that generation that they're looking to make it more aggressive. So when you come in and you're more aggressive, you naturally tend to aggressive people take more risks. But in particular, I would say, and I, I gave this example the other day, and, and it's this, they put in a law because there was a huge real estate crisis in this country after the 86 Tax Reform Act, a couple of thousand banks and savings and loans failed in the late 80s and early 90s. And so they changed the rules on lending money on real estate. So we made we had a niche. We had a couple of niches, but one in particular was dealing with foreclosed and distressed property lending. And the law said you couldn't lend 100% to purchase any non-owner-occupied real estate, whether it's residential or commercial. And so we said, but there's a lot of money in that, in that gray, Mel. So we went to the attorneys and they said, well, here's a way you can do this. If you, and, and we literally did about five or six things, and this is before the internet, that we did with newspapers and um, and uh, in the St. Louis County, and which is a which is a, a document that the attorneys use in the and in, uh, in the city record, that we built our own system that allowed us. If you came to us and said, "I'm going to buy a house in foreclosure or a building in foreclosure," you had to come up with the money in less than two hours. Well, we would lend you that money. We charged you a lot of money for it. But what we did was, and this is how we got out of the gray to a large degree, and I'll get to that in a minute, is the bank that paid us off, we gave you 180 days to pay us off. The average loan paid off in about 92 or 93 days. And the bank that paid us off, if we lent you 100,000 mail, they lent you 130 or 150 because now you owned it and it wasn't a purchase. They got an appraisal, which we couldn't get in a matter of a few hours. And it was always worth more. And we lent hundreds of millions of dollars that way over 15 years, made millions of dollars in fees and all kinds of net interest income. But that was the great. And we never, ever were rated negatively in our bank ratings, but we were constantly criticized. And every every year or so when they would come in and examine us, we spent days arguing, yes, we're in the gray. And yes, we've crossed the line according to regulation, but here's how we mitigated the risk. And so we had a culture of how could you do that? Because the margin was there. And so as you, you know, again, as you go back to that progression I mentioned earlier, as you start progressing, it's easier once you've done it one thing to do it in another. And we did that in other things. Ironically, and somebody pointed this out to me last night when I spoke to a group, in 1999, long before the crash, actually March 1st, of 1999, we bought a mortgage company in the summer of 94. In 97, the management had said, we want to form a subprime mortgage company. And we did that for about a year and a half. It was very profitable. And I was so scared of that business, Mel. I gave it to the management, not literally, I figuratively. We sold it to them for $25,000. And because if you sell the stock, you sell the liabilities that you're unaware of. And we got out of that. But a mere seven years later, eight years later, that's what the whole financial crisis was based on, was a meltdown of subprime lending. So even though I, I operated in the gray, there were some things that, you know, I just wouldn't accept. 
And that goes back to the moral compass was intact. That wasn't just about greed and money. It was about managing risks. And, but when things go in against me, I lost those core values. And as you, as you quantified it, my moral compass. I remember BCCI. I remember the Resolution Trust Corporation in the early 90s, you know, until it was disbanded, um, brought back to the FDIC. Those were bad times for banking because since the 1970s, they were deregulated and they pretty much could do whatever they wanted, right? Yes. And that, that really, somebody asked me, what do you think caused 2000, 2000, um, 2007, 2008 through 10 or 11? And you hit the nail. I said it was a deregulation in the 70s, but it took 30 years to implode. So let's talk about the experience then. What changed your perspective on, on business ethics and, and what advice do you have for others navigating similar ethical gray areas? We keep using that term. Well, the first thing that I tell people is, because a lot of people say, you know, people don't want to talk about ethics. And I said, you're right. But who better than somebody who had this 25-year unbelievable run and then this horrific failure than to talk about it? And I think as human beings, we all know the stove's hot, is the analogy. But sometimes, and we should learn from that experience, but sometimes we have to touch it. And what, what I believe is we have to teach people to believe it and not touch it. And the best people to tell you that are people like myself who thought they were above it, thought they were better than, thought they were smarter, thought whatever, you know, whatever you want to put on it and got burned. And I think the societal thing, you know, I, I, about a year ago, Ernst and Young, who are our auditors um, the last six years, they paid a $200 million fine because they their people were cheating on the CPA exam, you know, at, an, an effort to cheat that was organized. We're not talking about one individual. We're talking about dozens. And I mentioned Wells Fargo earlier in this sales culture where they, um, you know, they sold thousands of people on accounts and never told them. They just signed them up because they wanted bonuses. And the incentives, one thing that I learned through this is you have to align compensation with not only results, but with the right behavior. Because so many things cross that ethical line over money, but it's because it was misaligned. And I think that was totally the case at Wells. We're going to pay you bonuses if you sell this product. Well, there weren't the checks and balances when you sold it to make sure the people you sold it to actually bought it. Or you shouldn't be rewarding people. And that goes back to the 70s in banking. Before before that, the banking job was a 363, as we used to joke when I started you know, you you um, paid 3% on deposits, you charged 6% on loans, and I didn't play golf, but the golfers teed up at 3 in the afternoon. And once you made it to where you brought in a culture of, we want to get a result, you had all kinds of issues. People made decisions like I did, the wrong decision. And uh, and I, I, I think you can only do it with making ethics one, an underlying core value that's not only trained, but reinforced from top to bottom. And then secondly, it, it has to melt in with compensation because if you're not, if you're not watching the compensation thing that your people will drive to do the wrong things to get the money. That's just a fact of life. Unfortunately. I don't know why I'm thinking of AT&T for a second. It's just like a quick diversion, quick parenthesis. As you know, you remember the AT&T when it was, the monopoly went to the Supreme Court. They disbanded it. Uh, then we got the baby bells. So I thought that was good because a monopoly is just insidious. And we had the, the big three car manufacturers, 
But now we have the, in my opinion, we have the three big banks. What do we have? J.B. Morgan Chase. We have Bank of America. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.